Our lesson of the day comes from Acts chapter 2. I will begin reading in verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of the bread and in the prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for the church, the beautiful bride and glorious body of Christ. Father, we thank you for making us members of this church, your holy covenant community, this royal priesthood. Oh, Father, today we pray that you would build us up and strengthen us as your church, that we might be salt and light to the world all around us, that we might be the kind of church you call us to be in your word, that we might be the kind of church that our city needs us to be. Oh, Father, help us to become the things we see here in the book of Acts, chapter 2. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I don't have to tell you that the church gets a bad rap in our day. Maybe uh, it's not quite as uh, unfavorable in people's eyes as Congress, uh, but certainly people don't think very highly of the church in our day. In fact, people like to blame the church for much of what has gone wrong over the last 2,000 years. It's very, very common. Uh, it is politically correct to fault the church for being oppressive, for promoting a dangerous fanaticism, for repressing science and free inquiry, for being corrupt and abusive and hypocritical. Now, certainly, when the church has been at fault, we need to be quick to admit that and confess that. The sins of the historic church are our sins. The church has indeed covered up abuse. She's been guilty of persecuting her enemies. Uh, you can find plenty of dark and troubling chapters in the church's story. No doubt about that. But on the whole, the impression people have of the church in our day, including many Christians, is simply untrue and unfair. It's simply not an honest way of dealing with the church's history and the role that the church has played in the world. A more accurate retelling of the church's history, while not, not whitewashing the real sins and shortcomings uh, that have uh, been a part of the church's history, a more accurate retelling would include showing that the church is indeed the greatest force for human good and human flourishing the world has ever known. I think we can say that unequivocally. Our very civilization is the product of the church's ministry. The ancient world was full of brutality, slavery, infanticide, poverty, racism, tyranny, misogyny, and countless other evils. The church brought transformation to that world in all kinds of ways by strengthening marriage and family life, caring for the poor, stopping infanticide and the exposure of infants, treating women with respect and dignity, eradicating slavery, 
fostering free markets and representative governments, promoting the development of science and medicine, creating the university and and the hospital, founding orphanages and schools, and inspiring many of the greatest achievements in literature, art, music, and architecture the world has ever known. The church truly has a glorious heritage. Uh, Paul Meyer, the professor of ancient history at Western Michigan University, argues no other religion, philosophy, teaching, nation, movement, whatever, has so changed the world for the better as the church. Its shortcomings are heavily outweighed by its benefits to all mankind. And so if you don't know that story, the the story of how the church has changed the world and continues to change the world for the better, you need to. You need to know that story. Because quite honestly, you really can't defend the Christian faith today without defending the church. You can't do evangelism and proclaim the gospel to people without having to answer questions about the church's track record. So we need to be willing to engage in this history and show the glorious heritage of the church. But you know, one thing I've noticed is that Christians are sometimes just as negative towards the church as non-Christians, especially American Christians, who tend to have a hard time understanding where the church fits in and are a little bit embarrassed by the church. See, in America, we're a nation of staunch individualists. And it's very common to hear Christians say things like, yes, I love Jesus, but I really don't care much for the church. It's not uncommon to hear somebody in our culture say, yes, I'm spiritual, but not religious. I'm very spiritual. I love spirituality, but not religion. A privatized, individualized version of spirituality runs deep in our culture. Americans have often looked for church substitutes. So Thomas Paine, one of our nation's founding fathers, said, I don't need the church My own mind is my church. He substituted his philosophy, his his rationalism for the church. In 1832, Ralph Waldo Emerson, the godfather of privatized spirituality in America, walked out of his Boston church for the last time. He moved out into the Massachusetts woods to commune with nature and to write about nature, about self-reliance, and about reason. Quite often, you'll hear people say they don't need to go to church regularly because they can get the same information, the same teaching off a podcast, maybe even better preaching and teaching off of a podcast. And besides, they'll say they're just as near to God at the beach or on the golf course as they are sitting in church. The church is a bit of an embarrassment. The church feels stale and antiquated. It feels like the rest of the world has moved on and the church is stuck doing the same old things. And so it's easy to think the real spiritual action is found elsewhere. And the question is asked again and again, why do we really need the church? Who really needs the church? Now, for me as a pastor, of course, it's easy to feel threatened by those kinds of questions. And it's tempting to just grab a handful of Bible verses and throw them at people and say, look, God commands you to go to church. God says to do it. And God commands you to be a member of a church. God demands it of you. And that would be true. God does command us to be a part of a church. He does command us to go to church, to gather in the assembly of God's people. 
But I think simply throwing those kinds of commands at people is not enough. I think we can actually do better than that. I think we can give a more complete and indeed I would say more attractive answer than that. And this is where Acts 2 really helps us because it shows us that church is not just a matter of obligation. Being a part of a church is not just a duty. It is for your good. And when you really understand what the church is and what God is doing in and through his church and why even the shortcomings of the church in a way are there for our good, you really see the beauty of the church. And you can be drawn to the church in a new way. When the church is what God intends it to be, even with all its rough edges and flaws and shortcomings, it serves our good and enables us To flourish. God has created the church to nurture us in our life in Christ. It's uh, God has created the church and designed the church to challenge us so that we might grow and become more like Christ. So let's look here at Luke's portrait of the church, the portrait of the church drawn here by the divine artist. And let's see what the church looks like, the church as God intended. There are four features of the church that stand out, really more than this, but I picked out four features of the church in these verses from Acts. The church is a community with leadership. The church is a learning community. The church is a liturgical community. And the church is a loving community. So those four things, leading, learning, liturgy, and love. Okay, Easy enough, I think, to remember those things. Well, first, leadership. Uh, we see here that God has given to His church leaders. The church is a community with structure, with organization. Yes, the church is an institution, and that's not a bad thing. The church is an institution with designated leaders. The church is a body, and leaders help provide skeleton and structure for the body. And when we really understand this, we see how this is for our good. But this is so countercultural. We live in a culture that tends to discount and despise leadership. We don't want leadership. We don't want authorities over our personal lives. We choose autonomy over authority. We don't want to have to submit. We want to call our own shots. We don't want anybody else in our lives who can tell us what to do. We are a very, uh, as a culture, we are very averse to authority precisely because we want to make our own decisions and call our own shots. Our culture is very anti-institutional and anti-authoritarian. We've seen enough abuse of authority that we just don't want any authority at all. We see virtually all authority as a form of tyranny. And our culture reinforces this anti-authoritarian message again and again. You, you You used to see those bumper stickers that said, Question Authority. which I thought the right response was, who are you to tell me what to do? Uh, But our culture constantly bombards us with this kind of of messaging. You get it in advertising. Advertising messages that say, have it your way. And we're so used to personal autonomy, to freedom of choice. We can choose what news feeds we receive online so we never have to read or hear a conflicting opinion. 
You can just filter everything out that doesn't conform to your preconceptions. You never get challenged. We can create our own playlists on our music devices so you never have to sit impatiently through a song you don't like, like they did in the old days of radio. Right? We didn't necessarily like every song. And so naturally, we think we can customize our spiritual lives as well. We can sort of custom tailor our version of the Christian faith to fit with what we like and what we prefer, and everything becomes a matter of preference, and we never get challenged. But Acts 2 shows us there's really something beautiful, something right, even something necessary about submitting to an authority outside of ourselves. Now, in Acts 2, the authority figures are the apostles, uh, these men who are specially chosen by Christ to be the founding leaders of his church. You have these apostles in the book of Acts. Now, without submitting to the apostles and their message, no one is going to become a Christian. If you don't get the gospel from the apostles, you're not going to get it in Acts chapter 2. The apostles were the eyewitnesses to Jesus ministry. They were with Jesus throughout the course of his earthly ministry and then after the crucifixion and his resurrection, they saw and touched the risen Christ with their own eyes and hands. And they were appointed by Jesus to establish his church by telling his story, by preaching his gospel. And that's what we see happening in the book of Acts. In fact, what we read about uh, the church in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, is really the outcome and the consequence of the sermon that the Apostle Peter has preached earlier in this chapter. This is the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised to his church has been poured out. And so Peter now preaches the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's through the Apostle Peter's preaching, his authoritative proclamation of the message that the church is formed. Verse 43 tells us that the apostles did signs and wonders. In fact, if you look at Hebrews 2 and 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and perhaps some other places in the New Testament, uh, you find that there were signs of the apostles, signs and wonders apostles could do, miraculous actions apostles could perform to validate their message, to show, yes, we are messengers from God and here's proof. We can perform these miracles. Of course, we know, too, the apostles and their close associates wrote inspired scriptures under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. They gave us what we call the New Testament. Now, there are no more apostles today. Uh, Paul actually says he was the last of the apostles born out of due season. He became an apostle in a kind of odd way. He wasn't part of that team of of, uh, of apostles that followed Jesus during his earthly ministry. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he was the last of the apostles. And if you look at passages like Ephesians 2, you find that the apostles laid the foundation of the church. There's a kind of once and for allness to their apostolicity. And now we build the church on their foundation. So there are no more apostles. That's why you don't see signs and wonders uh, in the church the same way you did in the apostolic era. But even though there are no more apostles, there is still an authority structure in the church. There was an apostolic blueprint for the governance of the church handed down to the successors of the apostles. And it's clear from the New Testament their successors are pastors and elders and deacons 
who continue this work of ruling and overseeing and caring for the church. They are the leaders of the church. These church officers don't have the same authority as the apostles, but they do have a real authority. And again, you find this sprinkled throughout the New Testament. Passages like Hebrews 13, which says, Obey your leaders. Obey those who rule over you and imitate their way of life. Or Ephesians 4, which we read this morning, which speaks of Christ giving to his church gifts in the form of teachers and pastors for the purpose of authoritatively leading the church into Christ's likeness. Christ has given to his church pastors and teachers for the purpose of maturing the saints in Christ's image so the whole church can be formed in Christ's image. But of course, the only way they can really function as pastors and teachers in our midst is that they have some kind of authority if Christ has in some way delegated his authority to them. See, the church God intended is a submissive community. The authorities God has put in his church are for your good. And I think at some level we know this, even... Our culture recognizes this, uh, even though it goes against so much that's in the culture. If a football team is faltering, what do the fans do? They call for a new head coach. They say, fire the coach and go get us a new coach. Because everybody knows, every football fan knows that leadership makes a difference. And a better coach could take these same players and get a better result. Why? Because they would grow under his leadership. His leadership would foster excellence in the way the guy we've got right now, it's not happening. Or what if you have a bunch of musicians on their own, they just make a cacophony. But give them a skilled conductor to lead them, an authority figure who will wave his arms in just the right way, and they can make beautiful music. The cacophony becomes a symphony. See, leaders are put there in the church to foster your excellence, your growth to maturity. Leaders are put there in the church to turn the cacophony into a symphony. Leaders are put there by God in the church to help the whole church flourish. Now, you probably heard me say this before, but I'll say it again. The ruling elders in this church are a very underutilized resource. Those men are repositories of wisdom. And not enough of you, I'm afraid, seek their counsel when faced with some problem in life or some big decision. Sure, you've got Christian friends to turn to, and that's wonderful. And they can be sources of encouragement to you and help point you in the right direction. But know that God has especially put elders in this church for your good so you can seek them out and receive their counsel to point you in the right direction. The leadership God sets up in His church is for your good. The church God intends is a church with leadership. But we can go on from there. Second, we see the church is a learning community. And I know learning really happens unless you have the leadership. So you have to have the leadership for the learning to take place. But the learning is a really big part of this as well. The church is a community of disciples. You see this in verse 42. It says that these early Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They wanted nothing more to do than to sit at the apostles' feet and soak up their teaching. As I said, we don't have apostles anymore in the church, but we do have the apostles' teaching permanently recorded for us in the Scriptures. 
And so now, devoting ourselves to the teaching of the apostles means devoting ourselves as students of God's Word. It means we want to soak up all of God's Word that we can. We're disciples. That's a common name for Christians, right? We're disciples. To be a disciple means a student. That's what a disciple is. A disciple is one who sits under a teacher and learns from him as a student. A disciple is a student or a learner. And one thing I can tell you, a lot of pastors uh, would say this, uh, and I would say it too, it can be frustrating at times to see people work so hard in their studies, say at school, to prepare for a career, and they can be so academically minded when it comes to their career and to their studies, and then the moment they walk into the church, they become anti-intellectual. And they don't really want to learn anything. They just want to feel a certain way. People will go to great lengths. They will stretch themselves to learn a new vocabulary to go with their profession. So many professions require you to learn a new vocabulary. Or people will go to great lengths to learn a new vocabulary and all kinds of new principles so they can invest their money well. Or people will learn a new vocabulary and become real students of a particular sport. If you're going to be a fan of baseball or a fan of football, think about the vocabulary you have to learn and all the rules you have to learn. These games are so intricate. But then these same folks will walk into church and want everything dumbed down. Now, it ought not to be that way. This is not just disobedient. It's dangerous. People so often function in this dichotomy. We'll think very deeply when it comes to other areas of life, but when it comes to spirituality, we just want to feel a certain way. We don't want to have to think. But see, this is not only disobedient, it's dangerous. Because when we are not grounded in the Scriptures, we are so easily swayed by the culture or by what Scripture calls the world. The world as it is arrayed against God. And we're swayed by the world or influenced by the world without even knowing it. Without even realizing it, we lack discernment because we are immature in our faith. And we're immature because we haven't learned. We haven't learned the Scriptures. We don't strive to learn as disciples of Jesus. And when we don't strive to learn as disciples of Jesus, when we don't devote ourselves to this apostolic teaching, we're all too easily discipled by the culture. Instead of learning and growing as Christians and becoming more like Christ, we are discipled by the culture and we come to look more like the world around us. And indeed, that is what we see in the church today. All too often, Christians do not think or act all that differently from the world precisely because we have not been faithful students of Scripture. We have not devoted ourselves to the apostolic teaching. We have very little patience for it. Oh yeah, we'll learn and exert our intellects in other areas of life, but not here, not in church. We just want to feel a certain way. See, the reality is the Bible's a very big book. And while there is a lot in this book that is so simple even a child can understand it, there is a lot in this book that is complex and difficult to understand and requires diligent study. Think about this as an analogy. What if you wanted to be a disciple of Shakespeare? You wanted to become a a student of Shakespeare and an expert in Shakespeare. What would you need to do? You would need to devote yourself to a study of Shakespeare's plays. 
And you would need to master all the plots and you would need to examine the structure and you would need to familiarize yourself with the symbolism, a lot of which would be kind of weird and unfamiliar to you. You would need to uh, come to know what the themes and the motifs are in Shakespeare. You would need to know the history behind the plays, the historical context as much as possible. You could spend your whole life mastering the plays of Shakespeare and still not know everything there is to know. Well, let me tell you, the Bible is far deeper and richer and more complex than Shakespeare. If the Apostle Peter says that the Apostle Paul wrote some things that are difficult to understand, then you know, if it was hard for Peter to understand, you know it's going to be hard for you to understand. And so you know that this is going to be hard work to study the Bible the way God wants us to study the Bible, to know the Scriptures, to immerse ourselves in the Scriptures the way God wants us to. No, it is not easy. It means you cannot turn your brain off when you come to church. The church God intends is a church that teaches and preaches the whole counsel of God. Because that kind of teaching is transformative, not only for us as individuals, but for the culture. That's what you see in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, when the church grows, the growth of the church, the growth of God's kingdom, is so identified with the proclamation of God's word. It'll say things like this in Acts 12.24. The word grew and multiplied. The church is growing and multiplied, but it's described as the Word growing and multiplying. Or Acts 19.20, the Word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. There is power in the church's teaching ministry. Indeed, I find it interesting, the very last word that we read in the book of Acts. You know, Acts is sort of a story that ends with a to-be-continued dot, dot, dot. It doesn't really have a a firm ending. It doesn't have full resolution. But the last word in the book of Acts, in Acts 28.31, is the word unhindered. In the last verse of the book of Acts, we're told that Paul, who is in prison, he's he's a Roman prisoner, but we're told Paul preached the kingdom of God, teaching the things about Jesus with boldness and unhindered. And that's how Acts ends, with the word unhindered. It's as if Luke wants to say, look, Paul may be in prison, but the word of God is not imprisoned. Paul is enchained in chains, but the word is not in chains. The word can run. The word has been set loose. God's word is an unstoppable force. And when unleashed, it cannot be hindered. It can break down all opposition and all obstacles that stand in its way. Churches that teach the Bible are power churches. They are powerful churches because this is where power is found. When the word is preached, the kingdom of God grows and multiplies. It transforms people and it transforms the world. And that's what we want to be, a church where the word is proclaimed in this kind of way. We want to be a church where people are devoting themselves to the teaching of the apostles, to the teaching of scripture, where we are disciples, we are students, we are learners. We come to learn. Well, third, we see here that the church is a liturgical community. Verse 42 tells us they continued in the breaking of the bread. And in the prayers, verse 46 and 47 tells us they were worshiping together in the temple and breaking bread together house to house and praising God. 
I think these references to the breaking of the bread, and most of our English translations don't have that article there, but it's, it's actually there in the Greek, and I think that shows definitively this is a reference to the Lord's Supper. It's the breaking of the bread. What's the bread? It's the bread Jesus broke with his disciples on the night he was betrayed. The church God intends is a church that celebrates the Eucharist regularly, at least weekly. Coming together around this table, enjoying God's hospitality, knowing this is how God gives himself to us and makes us participants in the body and blood of Christ and participants in one another. It's a liturgical setting, a liturgical framework that's given to us here. The prayers point in the same direction. The prayers is probably a way of referring to the Psalms. And I think you especially see that if you go over to chapter 4 when the disciples have been persecuted and now pray together. They immediately go for the language of the Psalms. And so these prayers that are referred to here are probably sung prayers from the Psalter. See, what do we have in the Psalter? In the Psalms, God has given us 150 model prayers for us to sing as his people. And singing those prayers changes us, and singing those prayers changes the world. They have an effect on us. They form us in a certain way. And they also, because we're calling on God in the words of the Psalter to act in certain ways in the world, they have a transformative, powerful impact on the world as well. The church is called to change the world one psalm at a time. So what you see here, you've got all the ingredients of the liturgy. Obviously, there was preaching and teaching from God's Word. We've seen that. There is the Eucharist. Uh, there were prayers, and perhaps these were sung prayers, so there is musical praise. And again, all of these practices are formative. We do them again and again and again because God shapes us through them. And what keeps any of this from getting stale, you know, the fact that we'll sing the same hymns again and again, you'll hear the same scriptures read again and again, it's that God is in it. See, these, these, these don't seem like much, these means. But these means uh, are the way in which God gives us his gifts. These are the ways in which God gives us himself. God is really present in the word as it is read and preached. God is really speaking to us. God is really present at the table in the bread and the wine. The Holy Spirit making the body and blood of Jesus present to us. God really does inhabit the praises of his people. When we lift up our praises, God comes down to be with us. Through these means, God forms the culture of the church. Indeed, he makes us into a countercultural people. A people who can resist worshiping the idols of the world. Idols of money and sex and power. Why? Because we've worshipped the living God. And when you worship the living God, there's not room in your life to worship anything else. And so the idols get squeezed out. The idols get pushed out to the margins. You're worshipping the living God, so you can't worship some other God. Whether the God of Mammon, or the God of Aphrodite, or some other idol. There's just not room. The battlefield of the Christian life is always liturgical. Where did Satan attack in the beginning? He attacked in the sanctuary. 
in the place of worship where the sacramental food was found, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The battlefield is always liturgical. The war is always over worship. And if Satan can't keep you from coming to worship, he'll try to do that, but if Satan can't keep you from coming to church, then his next strategy is to do all he can to keep you from worshiping once you get here. If he can get the leaders of the church to replace the liturgy with entertainment. Or if he can get you to be distracted so you're not participating in the liturgy. Anything to keep us from giving glory and thanks to God. Anything to keep us from receiving God's gifts in faith. This is what Satan wants to do. This is where he attacks. Because the foundation of the Christian life is found right here in this gathering. These things that we do where God is at work in a unique way. The church God intends is a liturgical community. God's people gather to receive His gifts. To give Him glory. To give Him thanks. Finally, there's love. The church God intends is a community of love. Flowing out of their shared liturgy under a common leadership, they share their lives with one another. And so Acts 2 tells us these Christians, these early Christians, held their possessions in common. They ate together with gladness. They were in one another's houses showing hospitality. See what's happened here in Acts 2? The spirit of love has been poured out, and so they love one another. Just as the spirit of truth has been poured out, so now they love God's truth and receive God's truth. So the spirit of love has been poured apart and so has been poured out. And so now they act in loving ways towards one another. Now, people sometimes like to ask the question, ah, oh, this sharing of possessions, what does this mean? Is this some kind of uh, communism or socialism among the early Christians? And the answer is no. It's not. This is generosity. The spirit of generosity has been poured out, and so now God's people are generous. In fact, this is really the opposite of communism. Christians were not required to do this. It was strictly voluntary, and you see that if you turn over a few pages to the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Nobody was being forced to do this, and it was certainly not the result of some kind of class warfare as in communism. Part of the reason Christians were sharing their possessions, selling everything they had and, and, and sharing these things together, is that Christians knew the prediction of Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, in passages like Mark 13, they knew that the city of Jerusalem would soon be destroyed. And so they were actually liquidating their property before the real estate market crashed. They knew it was coming, uh, and so selling their, 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 their possessions, selling their land, their stake in the promised land, it was part of their heritage as the people of Israel. This was actually a prophetic act, a sign against Jerusalem, a sign of the coming judgment. That's part of it. But it's also a sign of their love for one another. It was their way of making sure that everyone's needs were met. Because as soon as these Jewish people started to turn to Jesus, many of them found themselves cut off from their family members or losing their jobs. You'll see the persecution so slowly build in the book of Acts. And it's mostly from Jews who do not believe in Jesus as Messiah against Jews who do believe in Jesus as Messiah. Jews who have become Christian and left their Jewish identity behind in certain ways. 
In the law, in Deuteronomy 15.4, it says, There shall be no poor among you. Now that the Spirit has been poured out, the law is being fulfilled. There will be no poor among the Christians. No poor in the church. The word that describes their sharing here, their holding all things in common, is koinonia in the Greek. It's a word that means fellowship or partnership. Again and again and again, it shows up in the New Testament to describe the kind of shared life that God's people enjoy with one another. It means we indwell one another. It means we share our lives with one another. Indeed, I think the impression you get here, it's not so much that their goods belong to each other, but their persons belong to each other. They didn't just share their things, they shared themselves. They didn't just share their stuff, they shared their hearts, they shared their lives with one another. Breaking bread and sharing possessions were a way for these many Christians to become one. To show that we share a common life in Christ and through His Holy Spirit. It shows they gave themselves to and for one another in and through Christ who gave Himself to and for the whole church. To describe the church as a fellowship is to say it is an active partnership of its members. And there is an active sharing amongst its members in both material and spiritual blessings. That's what it means for the church to be a koinonia. The church God intends is a koinonia. It is a fellowship. And you see how attractive this is. This kind of shared life. This kind of community. When you look at Acts 2, you can't help but get the impression that these first Christians just couldn't get enough of each other. They couldn't get enough teaching. They couldn't get enough praying. They couldn't get enough time together. They couldn't get enough of the community. This is what the Apostles' Creed calls the communion of the saints. This is what it looks like. There's a communion, a common life that the saints share with one another. It means that the church is a thick institution. So many of our institutions, so many of our relationships today are thin and therefore easily breakable. But this shows us a church that is thick, held together by deep and thick bonds of love and loyalty. Indeed, it's not merely human bonds of friendship that hold these Christians together. The Spirit Himself, the Holy Spirit, bonds these Christians together. Indeed, we might say the Spirit Himself is the bond that holds the church together. The Spirit holds the church together and makes the church one. And the common life we share is a life in the Spirit. I think really the key thing for us to see here is that these Christians cared for each other in practical ways. They were a tight-knit community because they made sacrifices for one another. And that's a model for us. This is the church God intends. Do not make the mistake of thinking that you can just show up at church and find community automatically. That's not what these Christians did. And community doesn't work that way. Community results from effort, from sacrifice, from love, from service, from being an active koinonia, an active partnership. But we have to be careful We have to be careful 
When we think about loving the church, we have to be careful how we go about this. We need to make sure that we love the church that actually exists and not some imaginary ideal. It is so easy to be idealistic about the church. If you can, this is a very idealistic picture in a way. If you keep reading through the book of Acts, you find it's actually very, very messy. The community life in the early church is very, very messy. A few chapters later, they're going to have said they were caring for the poor. A few chapters later, they're going to have to appoint what appeared to be the first deacons to care for the poor because certain poor were being neglected even when they held all things in common. It's easy for us to be idealistic about the church. We'd all like to be in a church where everybody gets along where everybody's happy all the time, where everybody serves everybody else, where no one ever annoys or irritates you. But that's not the church you and I are a part of. Because that church doesn't exist. God doesn't give us that idealized church. He gives us each other. And He says, here, go be the church. As difficult and as hard as it is. And You may find people in the body who do irritate you and annoy you. People who rub you the wrong way. People who are difficult to get along with. But God has thrown us in together to do these things as the church. When we love the church as we wish she were, instead of the church as she actually is, what happens is we become critics of the church. We become discontent. But see, what we need to realize, it is often precisely in these struggles that we have with other people in the church, it is precisely in those struggles that God wants to use us, that God wants to use those struggles in our lives to teach us patience and love in new ways. God will put people in the church who are difficult just for the purpose of stretching you and teaching you to love in new ways. When you find yourself in a difficult situation in the church where the church is not measuring up to your ideal and your expectation, the best thing to do is not sit back and complain about it. Then you just become part of the problem. No, make yourself part of the solution. Every community has its struggles. Community is always messy. Community is always hard. But just because the church falls short of your expectations does not mean you're to give up on her. What happens here at the corner of Greendale and Bearden is not perfect. It's not. No church is perfect. No church this side of the resurrection is going to be perfect. But what happens here at the corner of Greendale and Bearden is truly amazing. Because God is at work here. The lightning bolt of God's grace strikes again and again And again, God is at work here just as He's at work in all kinds of local churches week after week. Right here at the corner of Greendale and Bearden, this is where God's saving work takes place. Though this may not be the church of your dreams, because the church of your dreams doesn't exist anywhere. But this is the body of Christ God has given to us. And He's done so, warts and all, for our good. To stretch us, to mold us, to test us, to challenge us. So we can prove our love and grow in our patience, in our fellowship with one another. Eugene Peterson says, yes, the visible church is a mess, but it's the only church we have. 
Yes, the church is a mess, but there's no other place to be a Christian. He says every Christian is a, he says every congregation is a congregation of sinners. And what's worse, they all have sinners as pastors. But the church really is the only place to be a Christian. The church is always and will always be the playing field of the Christian life. The only place where you can be a Christian is in the church. This is the place where God is at work to save and to forgive and to transform. And we see that especially, I think, by how Luke ends this section. Verse 47, the Lord added to the church those who were being saved. To be saved and to be added to the church are the same thing, just from different perspectives. Oh, somebody will say, hey, that doesn't, you know, just being a part of a church doesn't mean you're saved. Being in the church doesn't automatically mean you're saved any more than standing in a garage makes you a car. And that's true. We do need to remember that. Membership by itself in the church does not guarantee salvation. You have to trust and obey Christ. You have to practice the Christian life. But at the same time, it needs to be said, it needs to be stressed, you cannot embrace Christ without embracing the church, which is the body of Christ. Unless you want a head severed from its body, when you embrace Christ, you embrace His church as well. He is the head, the church is His body. You cannot have one without the other. And so those who are united to Christ by faith are also united to the church in love. There's no other way to be a Christian. There's no other way because Christ and His church are one. And so to love Christ is to love His people. To love Christ is to love His people. Uh, The poet uh, Percy Shelley said, I could follow Jesus and be a disciple of Jesus if it was not for that leprous bride, the church he drags behind him. And there are many people who feel that way about the church. But we need to remember, just like I don't like it if people talk bad about my wife and you married men, I know you don't like it if people talk bad about your wife. Jesus doesn't like it when people talk bad about his bride. We need to recognize the church for what she is. The church is the body of Christ and the bride of Christ. And there's no way to embrace Christ without embracing His people. No way to embrace Christ the head without also being a member of His body. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that we would be the church You intend, the kind of church You intend. We know that loving the church and loving the members of the church and living in the church is not always easy. But we know even the hard things about being the church and being in the church are for our good. Use the church. Use the the ministries, the means of grace you have entrusted to the church in our lives to make us all more like Christ Jesus that we might grow into the full stature of His maturity. This we pray in His name. Amen.